the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God, and the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. Well, the book of Judges is often one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible. Because we tend to make it about a few broken, sinful people that God miraculously empowers to make a difference in their culture and in their community. We focus on men like Gideon, the weakest child of the weakest family of the weakest tribe in an already defeated nation, but God chose him to empower and to deliver God's people. Man, we love that story, but we forget. We forget about the tyrant that Gideon turned into. We forget about the faithless example that he left for his home and for his people. As a culture, we love to focus on men like Samson, someone that God gifted with miraculous strength and power, a man who had some of the most creative battle strategies ever, ever had in Scripture. But we forget. We forget about his faithless example, his rebellious heart before the Lord. Man, we love to focus on women like Deborah and the countless nameless women that God has used to deliver his people throughout the book of Judges. But we tend to forget that even though women were looked down upon in their culture back then, God didn't forget them. God empowered them and used them in miraculous ways. There's so many great stories within the book of Judges that we tend to forget the real purpose and message of the book. It's not about those men. It's not about those women. It's about the real disgrace of sin and the powerful reality of the deliverance of God. But now in our study of Judges, we're finished with the stories and we're left with the final five chapters. We find ourselves in the middle of that. Chapter 19. It's a passage many are unaware of, others are disgusted by. Some people like to ignore it altogether. Others just acknowledge it and move forward. I don't feel like we can do that. I feel like we need to give the text the respect it's due. See, I believe Judges is not just a history book with narratives of something that happened in the past. It's a divinely inspired message for us. It's a mirror for our soul. It's a window into our future. 
And it helps us understand what happens, what the world would look like with the absence of God. So if you have your Bibles, will you join me? Judges chapter 19. As we read it, some of you might weep. Others may shake their heads in disgust. But my goal is that after we read it, we come face to face with the power of depravity and then finish our time in prayer and begging God to intervene in our homes, in our church, and in our community. Chapter 19 begins this way in verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. Again, two things I want to bring, uh, make notice for you. Number one, again, there's a time where there's no king in Israel. That is not a political statement. That is a spiritual statement. There's no spiritual authority. There is no submission to God. There is no morality. Everyone is just living life how they want. They're defining morality how they see it. They're making their future all about them. It's a spiritually dark time and culture. But as we read this first chapter, we, or this first verse, we begin to have hope. Then there was a certain Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country, a Levite. A member of the tribe of Levi, chosen by God to be instruments of his glory and servants of his people. These were the clergy of their day, men of the cloth who were understood to have a special relationship with God and therefore be a powerful instrument of his. So we read that first verse, we think, okay, that's a dark time in culture, but hey, there's a pastor. There's a pastor entering in. I also want to make mention to you the first 16 chapters of Judges, we never heard anything about Levites, did we? Only in the last five. Last week was our first introduction to a Levite who was a disgraced leader. And I think this guy is going to be even more disappointing to you. In fact, that's our first point. The chapter begins with a disappointing leader. I mean, we have such high hopes at the beginning. There's this dark culture. But hey, God puts a pastor right in the middle. But look at how it continues. It came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. If we read that, we might be tempted to just move forward and read through it, but here's some things you have to understand. Number one, you have this Levite. And the first thing we hear about him is that he has a concubine. Let me make sure, again, you understand a concubine was an official role within the family. It's a woman who had fewer rights than a wife and was focused on sexual pleasure of the husband. It's a role common in this culture and sadly even with the people of God. And there's some people who say, hey, Brian, forget it. God's okay with concubines. 
If you go into the Old Testament law, there's rules about concubines. And I want to make something clear. Those rules about concubines were not there to honor that position, but to protect the women who were in that position. Do you understand the difference? One is to say God's okay with it. One is to protect the women who are in the midst of it. God set up marriage way back in Genesis at the very beginning. One man, one woman becoming one flesh in the honor of God. And as you read through scripture, you're right. There's many of God's faithful people with concubines. Solomon had 700 of them. Never ended well. This Levite, although he wasn't breaking the law, he certainly wasn't pursuing God's best. That's the message at the very beginning. This is a guy who's not necessarily breaking the law, but he's not setting any records either. But we get another hint about the concubine. See, in, in my Bible, in the New American Standard, it says his concubine played the harlot. That phrase, played the harlot, it's an interesting terminology here. It's a term that means that this woman felt repugnance, intense disgust. She felt nauseous around him. Some translations go as far as to say she left him versus she had an affair with him. Either way, we begin to get an idea that this marriage is far from ideal. There's brokenness in the midst of it. This woman felt disgust over this guy. And whether she had an affair or not, it led her to run home to her father. And the man left her there for four months. Four months. Before text, before email, before letters. Four months. Ah, fine. Forget it. And then we get another clue. Look at verse 3. Then her husband, after four months, her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her. In the context, this is meant to give you the idea this is something new for this guy. After four months, he, began, he decided to act differently. Spoke tenderly means to speak to one's heart, to pay attention to one's feelings and concerns. At the very beginning of this chapter, we get this ideal man of the cloth and we grow very disappointed. He's not pursuing God's best. He's not being a reflection of what we would like to see or what we expect of a man of the cloth in regards to his marriage. Most believe that he mistreated this woman, and so she ran away. The section continues after four months. He pursues her. He meets her father. Her father is very excited that he came back because it's a dishonor to have your, your daughter come home. He has every desire, every interest to send her back. And so you have a series of meals, a series of celebrations, a series of get-togethers with this disappointing leader, and in my opinion, is equally a disappointing father. The father continues to ask the man to stay, perhaps so he can protect his daughter, perhaps not. That's where we pick up the story in verse 10, where this disappointing leader leaves with his concubine again. Look at verse 10. But the man was not willing to spend the night again. 
So he rose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. And there were with them a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with them. She's coming home with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone. The servant said to his master, please come and let us turn aside into the city of Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, we will not turn aside in the city of foreigners. We are not as the sons, uh, who are not of the sons of Israel. We will go on as far as Gebeah. He said to his servant, come, let us approach one of these places and we'll spend the night in Gebeah or Ramah. I want to pause there for a moment. Because here's this disappointing leader, right? He's not killing it in regards to his spiritual life. He's not aiming for God's best. He's got a broken marriage. He's not known for treating his concubine with respect. Who knows about his wife or wives? Is it time for him to return? And all of a sudden, the culture's too bad for him. We're not going to go to those people. They're not God's people. Unrighteous people live over there. Those are sinners in that city. We're not going over there. We need to stay with our own kind. I began to sit here and think, man, how did this self-righteous, disappointing leader miss his own brokenness, but he starts judging everybody else's? Got me thinking, do you ever fall into that? It's so easy for us to look past our flaws, our failures, our brokenness. And we look at the culture and we start judging them, demeaning them. I think that's what Jesus was going after when he said this in Matthew chapter 7. Look what he says. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, surprise, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I wonder if this Levite, this chosen instrument of God, this person everyone assumed was a vestal and an instrument of God's glory, a servant of his people, if somehow he missed the struggles and issues of his own heart and just judged everyone else. Well, the story continues, verse 13 or 14. So he didn't go to any of those quote-unquote wicked cities, verse 14. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gebeah, which begins, belongs to Benjamin. Verse 15, they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gebeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Let's hit pause. See, the text wants to make sure we understand. See, they walked into this city, and no one welcomed it in. You got the idea. It's kind of like a ghost town. These strangers start going into the city. All of a sudden, mamas come in and start rushing their kids in from the street. Women uh, go out the window and draw the shutters. You start seeing doors close and windows shut. All of a sudden, you have these visitors in the center of this town. And, and the text is clear. It says no one's walking them in. No one took them into his house. And that's an important truth.
Back then, hospitality is one of the sacred laws in their culture. No stranger was to be neglected in your town. Here's just a few places where it's seen in the law of God designated to take care of travelers and visitors. Look at Leviticus 19. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. I love the end. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You, you know what it feels like. I am the Lord your God. Look at Exodus 22. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Look at Exodus 23, 9, next chapter. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And there's many more, instructing to feed, clothe, house. The mindset of caring for others wasn't just an Old Testament thing, but a New Testament thing. Look at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. This heart of hospitality, this care for strangers, heart for others, it's also a characteristic of a church leader. Look at what Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. An overseer then must be above reproach, beyond accusation, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable. Whoops, look at that next one. Hospitable. Able to teach, not addicted to wine, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Right there in the middle of those characteristics that church leaders are to be known for. Man, as a people of God, where we want them to be above reproach, we want them, want them to have strong marriages, we want them to be able to teach. But hospitable, you have this heart for newcomers. You have this heart for strangers. So you know it's a big deal. You know it's a big deal when the text makes sure we understand. Look, there's something wrong with this town. These strangers went into town and they're in the town center and someone's supposed to go to them and say, hey, brother, you're here for the night? Hey, come settle in my home. Come rest your animals. Let me wash your feet. Let's share a meal. Nothing like that's happening. Then we go on, verse 16. So we're already clued in. Something's amiss, verse 16. Then, behold, surprise, man, I love, this is why I love the Hebrew It adds so much color. Then, when everyone's sitting there in the square, it's like a ghost hand. Tumbleweeds are going down the street. That's the only activity in the city at the moment. Then, behold, surprise, all of a sudden, an old man was coming out of the field from his work in the evening. And this wasn't an old man who grew up in town. No, 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 this was a stranger himself. Now, the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. He was staying in Gebeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. Verse 17, this old man, he lifted up his eyes, saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? What are you, and where do you come from? Verse 18, the Levite said, we're passing from Bethlehem to Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. For I am from there and I went to Bethlehem and Judah, but now I'm going to my house. No man will take me into his house. I'm sitting here waiting for someone to help me. No one's helping me. 
What's wrong with this town, Levite's saying? Verse 18, yet there's both straw and fodder for our donkeys. Look, we're not looking for handouts. We have everything we need. Also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There's no lack of anything. The old man said, peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. No, 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 you don't need any of that. However, do not spend the night in the open. No, 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 come on. I got to tell you, you don't want to be here at night. That's what he's saying. But he's like, yeah, I'm just going to hang out here in the square. Old man says, no, 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 come to my house. You do not want to be here. Verse 21, so he took him into his house, gave the donkeys food. They washed their feet, ate and drank. Verse 22, while they're celebrating, behold, here's another surprise. They're sitting there eating, probably at dessert cooking s'mores, sharing stories about their family, complaining about the Lakers and Russell Westbrook. I think even, even back then they're doing it. Or they're celebrating, sharing stories, showing off scars. Behold, surprise, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we might have relationships with him. Let's hit Pause. Now suddenly we recognize what's wrong with the town. See, this isn't just the people of God. This is a sinful city. We got a hint of it when no one, everyone, when strangers come in, everyone just starts looking down and going to their house. Everyone knows what's going to happen. This old man didn't grow up in town. He's not going to watch it happen. Hey, come to my house. He's probably hoping and praying that no one noticed. But everybody noticed. Right there at the end of dinner, the night's coming to a close. Bang, bang, bang! Hey, bring that guy out here. It describes worthless fellows, just so you know, worthless fellows, that's Bible talk, to describe troublemakers, men who are good for nothing, but trouble like this. The literal translation calls them sons of Belial, sons of wickedness, children of, who are evil to their core. These are some bad dudes. Knock, knock, bang, bang, send that guy out here. We want to rape him all night. Verse 23, you have an old righteous man, right? You have a Levite, a man of the cloth, a called and chosen instrument of God, a dedicated servant to his people. We have this inner desire and hope that maybe they're going to do the right thing. Look at verse 23. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man is coming to my house, do not commit this act of folly. Hey, this is here. He's safe with me. Don't do this. Here you get to think, good for you, old man. I don't use that term as disrespect. I'm just using that's what the Bible said. Good for you. Verse 24. Then comes the beginning of the brokenness, right? This old man doing so good. Verse 24. Here's my virgin daughter. 
And here's this man's concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them. No need to look up that term ravish. You know what it means. Please let me bring them out to you so that you may ravish them and do whatever you wish. Don't touch this man. If you're like me, you start shaking your head and you start, wait, wait, haven't we heard this story somewhere before? Haven't we seen something like this? Let me remind you, put your thumb in Judges, flip over to the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Genesis, chapter 19. Famous story. Story of Sodom. Let me geek out with you just for a minute. I want you to know this is the exact same number of Hebrew words in Genesis 19 describing the incident of Sodom, the exact same number of Hebrew words in Judges 19. To make sure we don't miss what is happening in Gebeah is exactly what was happening in Sodom. Both chapter 19s, by the way, same number of words, and oftentimes the same phraseology. Man, the author of Judges wants to make sure that our brain goes directly to this. Genesis 19, 1 through 8, let me read it. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. His lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when Lot saw them. He rose to meet them, bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house, spend the night and wash your feet that you may arise early and go on your way. You don't want to be outside at night. Come in here. Hopefully we'll make it through and you can get out unharmed. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. <laughs> Angel's like, bring it, let him try. Verse 3, yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every square. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with any man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch that they have come under the shelter of my roof. Here are the similarities. Let me remind you what God thought about Sodom. I'll put it on the screen. Genesis 18 the Lord said, he was talking to uh, Abram, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. God looks at Sodom and is like, these guys are crazy. Exceedingly grave. These guys are beyond wicked. This city is beyond lost. You know what ended up happening to Sodom. Now, if you're like me, you begin to wonder, but Gebeah is different, isn't it? That's filled with the people of God. I mean, Sodom, they were just wicked lost people. Gebeah, these are Israelites. 
These are Israelites. They deserve better. Man, they're to be a light on a hill. They're God's chosen people to be a blessing to the world. What happened? How does a city of Gebeah turn in to a city of Sodom? That's a question that I believe we're supposed to ask. It's a question that I believe the Apostle Paul wants to help us understand. Turn to Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, look what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, been, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, look at verse 21, even though they knew God, Man, do you think Paul might be talking about the people of Gabeah? Man, they even knew God. They're the people of God, for they even knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Look at verse 24. Then therefore, because they gave up on God, they exchanged God for something different. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. That phrase, gave them over. He washed his hands of them. He let them go. He stopped protecting them. And look at what happens to people when that happens. God gave them over. Fine, whatever. Go your way. I'm stepping out. You want to see unrestrained wickedness? You want to see unrestrained desire? Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for. Why? Why would he do that? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And there came a point to where the people of God and the men of Gabeah said, forget it, we're going our own way. There's no king. We're done with God. We're doing our own thing. There's a point where God then says, okay, off you go. He did it because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's keep going on then. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to, to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness. Look what happens. Have you ever seen this before? I mean, Paul is just telling people, you want to abandon God, there is darkness down that road. 
filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Hey, just dream up stuff. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I love that disobedient to parents is after inventors of evil. Feel free to use that. Man, there's wicked people. They dream up stuff. You want to know what's worse than that guy? People who disobey their parents. Love that. Feel free to use that. Verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And Paul says he gave them over. Perhaps one of the saddest realities, the book of Judges, is how far the people of God drifted from God. And how, instead of reflecting the glories of God as his people, they're described in a way that uses the same number of words for Sodom. Much of the same phraseology, the same darkness. I think one of the saddest parts of this book is at the beginning where you had a whole nation of people praising God. They had this blessing from them, from, from God, right? I'll go before you. You'll never know failure. You'll never know defeat. You won't have any grave diseases. Everyone will experience the love of a family. Everyone will be blessed and have more than they need. It's going to be great. All you have to do is be faithful within two generations. You have Gabea. If you're not depressed yet, let's keep going. See, we think we're at the worst, right? You have the men of Gabea, who God has just turned over. You have this old man, but there's, there's still the Levite. They're still the chosen instrument of God. They're still the man of the cloth. They're still the clergy. Look what happens to him, verse 25. But the men would, would not listen to him. They keep banging on the door. The man, the Levite, freaked out. He knows what's going to happen all night. He doesn't want any part of it. So the man seized his concubine, brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning, then let her go at the approach of dawn. And if you're like me, you read it, and you're stunned. Well, what do you say about that? The Levite grabbed her by the shirt, opened the door, pushed her out, and closed it. Knowing what's going to happen to save his own skin. He pushed this woman out who he spoke tenderly to just days before. We shake our head and wonder what, what could possess a man, and not just a man, a chosen instrument of God, a man of the cloth. We keep reading. 
As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. Look at the beginning of verse 27. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors. This dude slept through it all. I want to make sure, and I told you in the email, people are coming to me and they're saying, Brian, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say about it because I'm reading it. Me neither. This chapter is meant to expose to you what happens to a good person who loves God's heart if they have God absent in their home, absent in their church, absent in their community. Man, people do what's right in their own eyes. People invent all sorts of wickedness and evil and horrible things happen. And the people of God, quote unquote, end up being a part of it. And we're stunned. And we're silent. We don't know what to think. And so we just tend to gloss over chapter 19. We start reading Ruth because that's a whole lot nicer. I want to make sure you understand this is happening. This happened. Within the nation of Israel, the people of God, who are supposed to be a reflection of his glory, this Levite, this chosen instrument of God, slept through the whole thing. Then when he rose in the morning, opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way. Then behold, surprise, he wasn't expecting this, by the way. His concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold reaching for help, hoping that someone would hear her cries. Look what he said, verse 28. He says, get up, let's go. Oh, you survived. Good for you. All right, let's go home. Long donkey ride ahead. But there is no answer. I want to be clear. That's not Hebrew for she was dead. That's Hebrew for she was barely alive. Just short of dead. He placed her on the donkey, and the man arose, went to his home. When he entered the house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, cut her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, sent her throughout the territory of Israel. It's all said and done. Most people believe this woman probably died on the donkey ride home. I want to pause just to add one extra layer of sickness to this. If you're not already disgusted, where's home for the Levite? You ever think of that? Look back at verse 18. Verse 18, he's talking to the old man, right? He says, the man was from the old country of Ephraim and he was staying in Dubai, but the men... Oh, sorry, go down to 18. He said, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judea to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem and Judah, but now I am going to my house, and no one will take me into his house. Now, I don't know why my Bible says my house. Anyone else's Bible say God's house? Because in the Hebrew, it says I'm going to the house of God. I'm going to Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the tabernacle is. There's quarters for Levites. I mean, this guy worked at the church. He's taken this lifeless concubine who had been tortured all night, and he slept through it. He then goes back to the house of God, and most people believe when he's in the quarters of the Levites, 
It's a matter of yards away from the presence of God. He takes his concubine and chops her up into 12 pieces. And mails her out to all the tribes of Israel to make sure everyone understands the wickedness of what they did to her. Who pushed her out the door? Man, this guy has such righteous indignation. Look what these men did to my concubine. Let me end it this way. Verse 30, after people started to get this in the mail, you can imagine their shock. All the people who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. People look and say, what happened? What on earth is going on? I want to make sure they're saying nothing like this has happened since we left Egypt. Can we just recap some of the crazy things that's happened to them since Egypt? I mean, there was such sin. The, the ground opened up and swallowed a whole bunch of people. I mean, they sinned so much that God sent a bunch of snakes and just started attacking all of them. I mean, there's all of this crazy, sinful stuff. They're like, how did this happen? This is worse than the ground opening up and eating people. Like, this is bananas. How did we get here? That's what they're saying. How did this happen? Can I ask anyone else look at culture today and ask the same question? Oh, my goodness. How did we get here? There's no clarity on... on on um, gender, there's no truth, there's corruption up the wazoo, I don't know who to believe and who not to believe anymore, there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's famines, I mean, evidently the glaciers are melting faster than ever, and I mean, you're looking around like, oh my gosh, how'd we get here? This is far worse than just $6 gas at Sam's Club. Like, this is bananas. And at this moment, the people of God, they're hearing the story and they're shaking their heads. They're like, something's wrong. And look how it ends. I think there's great wisdom. They said, look, nothing like this has ever happened. What on earth is going on? And then look at the end. Three things that people of God were saying. Consider it, take counsel, speak up. People are like, what on earth is going on? And there is this general agreement among all the people. Number one, consider it. I think it's great wisdom for us. Consider it. Stop thinking of, stop and think about this. Take a moment and recognize what happened. Don't just move on. Don't ignore it. Don't forget it. I thought, what a great direction for us. Maybe a great direction for you. Man, we're so busy. We're so fast. We just tend to gloss through pain. When was the last time you stopped, considered your life? What's broken in your home? What's lost in your marriage? Where are your children and grandchildren in pain? I mean, where has culture gone wrong? I mean, maybe it's time we need to stop and consider, really make a list. of all the sin, 
in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, and in our community. Number one, maybe it's time for us to consider. Two, second directive, people of God said, consider it. Number two, take counsel. Once you make your list, take counsel, listen to wisdom, accept advice. Once you make your list, how do we fix it? What do we do? I would say, what's the Bible say about it? Once you look at your house, you look at your church, you look at your community, what's the Bible say? What direction does God give us? Three directives at the end of all this madness, when they're looking at it, they're like, what do we do with this? Someone says, consider it. Take counsel. What's the Bible say? What wisdom do we have? I mean, let's think about this. Third, speak up. Where has God called you to act, to move, to start making changes in your life, your home, and your community? Speak up. Don't just sit there and make a list and grouse about it. I want to make sure you understand, we, we are not called to just sit here and survive and wait for Jesus to return. We're called... We're not called to be weakened vessels of sin, but reflections of the glory of God. Look at what the Apostle Peter said to the early Christians. First Peter said this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to make sure you understand, people of God were called to be better than Gabeah. And so are we. We're called to be better than them. We're empowered to be better than them. We're expected to be better than them. In our homes, in our churches, in our leaders, in our community. So my question is, maybe it's time. Will you consider your life? What needs to be addressed? Let's get counsel. Let's make a strategy. Then let's speak up. We are the chosen instruments of God. We are the Levites of our day. We cannot be like that guy. Where does God need to change our lives, our homes, and our community? Because chapter 19 not only gives us a mirror into our soul, it gives us a peek into our future. Let's pray. God, we come on a chapter that is sickening and discouraging and frightening. God, we read it and it's so easy to judge. It's so easy, so easy to get angry at that Levite, to judge the men of Gebeah. God, it's so easy for us to be in church and scratch our head and wonder how this can happen. God, I pray you give us eyes to see our own lives. 
God, give us ways to recognize, God, that we have already declared you absent in so many parts. So God, we ask, open our eyes, allow us to see the areas of brokenness in our lives, in our own hearts, in our marriage, our marriages, our churches, our culture. And God, we ask that when we witness those and we make a list of those, God, help us not to make our own plans. God, help us to focus on your path. Your direction. God, we believe in your power to heal, to restore, to renew, to revive. So God, finally we ask that you use us. God, empower us with your spirit. Fill us with faith and courage, God, that we might speak with boldness into the darkness of our homes and our culture. God, give us courage God, give us faith, God, that we will allow you to lead, you to guide. God, I pray for leaders, leaders of this church, leaders in their homes, leaders in our community. God, I pray that you give them strength. God, that they would stand on your truth and not fall to pass and protect themselves, but reflect your glory. God, our desire is that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us what we need and deliver us from evil. God, lead us away from temptation. God, help us to forgive others who have wronged us so we don't continue the cycle of vengeance. God, we'll model after you because you have forgiven us. God, and give us faith. This is your battle. This is your church, and we're your people. Everything is yours, and yours is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen.